podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca. My name is Jared Kimber. And a few years ago, I received an email from a test cricketer. Now, I've received correspondence from cricketers before, sometimes verbally across a bar, uh, usually in social media, uh, just moments after my piece has gone public on them. But this was something different. This was a player going out of his way to find my email and then asking for advice. And that player was... My name is Sean Masood and I'm a cricketer who plays for Pakistan. This is such a fascinating interview with a player who completely changed who he is as a cricketer. He still only played 20 tests and recently missed out on Pakistan's World Cup campaign, but he's had to deal with the full career's worth of work already. He's had slights about his family, the fact he didn't look good enough, the fact he didn't make enough runs in and out of the team, the time he tried to copy Joe Root poorly, and his recent comeback. So this is an interview about Shah Massoud as a raw youngster, an over-the-hill 26-year-old, and then finally as Shan 2.0. I want to take you back to the beginning of your career when you were first chosen for Pakistan. How, how did you feel at that stage? You know, for you, it must have been a lifelong dream. I mean, yeah, uh, I was 24 then and quite a lot of uh, players from my under-19 batch had already played for Pakistan. So for me, it was more the excitement of, uh, of playing for Pakistan. And I mean, if I look at it now... Uh, look at it with a mature and probably a level head, I'd say that I was quite raw then. But I think that excitement got me through. Uh, my uh, my debut was, was not bad. Uh, I made it against the world number one side, uh, South Africa, and uh, got a score of 75 in the first innings. So I think it was more excitement, uh, the, the lifelong dream fulfilled that I played for Pakistan, but... I think deep down inside, I knew that as a player, I was quite drawn. I had a long, long way to go. I remember talking to Mark Butcher once, and he said that early on in his career, he would walk out on the field and just be like, I shouldn't be here. I'm, I'm not ready. I was picked before I was ready. You made 75 in that first innings. Uh, you made 125 not long after that. Did you still have in the back of your mind, I've been a bit lucky and I'm not quite ready yet? I think from the very first time I got selected, there's a mixed bag of, of opinions. Some welcomed the selection and some people didn't. Uh, and then I've just always uh, had a tag uh, in post, especially early on in my career. Uh, and, and I think uh, there were times I questioned my own position. But I think the environment I was around, I was around a bunch of people that was probably the most successful like in terms of results as, as a Pakistani team and as a Pakistani batting unit. I think I grew up in an environment that allowed me to sort of settle in quickly. Uh, Yunus Khan was my hero. He was playing for Pakistan then. Uh, and then having to score 75 in my first innings. And then in my fifth test match, I got my first century. So if you look at players like Azhar Ali and Asad Shafiq, who are the backbone of Pakistan test cricket, especially at the moment right now, it took them time to get their first done. But... I was able to do it in, in my fifth game, so I'll admit that I was not the player that I probably am right now. But I think mentally, I grew up in an environment that allowed me to get sort of these results back early in my career. You talked about when you were first selected. You had two tests in, cut the series out, then you came back for two tests, then you came back for five tests, then you were gone again. I think you, you might have been back for three tests. 
at that stage, and there's no professional athlete who, who says that's their dream. You want to play and you want a chance to show that you're a good player. What was going on with you emotionally at that stage? Uh, I mean, the, the first time I made my debut, I ended up playing the second test match as well. Um, and I think I got a total of 96 runs in four innings. And that's not great. If you put aside the first innings, the other three innings were pretty low scores. But I went back to first-class cricket straight away. And I think I played four first-class games and, and I scored two centuries. So now I had the taste of international cricket against probably the best side in the world. Then I came back and that's when a lot of players can get relaxed. But I made sure I put in the yards. I got two first-class centuries in four games. Went back into the Sri Lankan series and I got dropped from the playing eleven. So for me, that early in my career, that was a bit of a shock. Because, I mean, you expect to get a decent run, especially when you get drafted into the side and you have a decent debut. And then I didn't play my next test match till 2014, December against New Zealand. And that too as a, as a, as a backup because Anil Shazad had gotten hit on the head. Uh, and in, in that time, I was benched. I was uh, probably dropped from the side as well in between, sent back to play A games. And, and my, my spot was under question. It depended on if I got any runs in the A games. So that's the kind of time, especially at that early on in my career, that's when you're not mature. That's where a lot of immaturity shows up. And I don't think like mentally I handled that really well. I always thought there was a sword dangling over my head that if I didn't get runs in a particular game, I will, I'll probably get dropped. Then I got a back injury and I got dropped. After returning from the uh, back injury, I got dropped against Bangladesh post-World Cup 2015. Uh, then I had to go to Sri Lanka for an A tour. And I only got about two innings there and, and one of them was 182 against the Sri Lankan A side over there. That forced my way back into the squad for the Sri Lankan tour, uh, which was a month later in 2015. And when I came back into the side, I didn't play the first two test matches. Hafiz and Ahmed Shazad were opening. And at that point, I was like, I'm 26. I've played a handful of test matches. I don't know where this is going. And I must say that at that time, Mispah was the captain and he came up to me and he asked, and, and I looked a bit dejected and down after not having played the second test match. And we'd lost that test match as well. So it wasn't a great feeling in the dressing room. And he asked me my age and I said, 26. He's like, do you know what I was doing at 26? <laughs> I said, no. And he said, I just graduated from uni and started playing first class cricket. You've already played first class cricket. You've already played for Pakistan. You had an amazing debut. So why should you worry about your age? I mean, if you keep yourself fit like you are, you play to a good age and, and you won't have to worry about your age at the moment. And like how things work, I mean, how the universe works in, in, in random ways. Uh, Hafiz got called for his bowling action. I had to step in in, in the Pali Kelly test match. And the first innings went by, I only got 13. And again, I went I went sulking again, thinking this is probably my only chance. And after that, I'm not going to get another chance. And again, Miss Ben Yunusan came up to me and I probably hit two boundaries in that 13. And they said, the way you hit those two boundaries, that was very encouraging to see in test match cricket. If you can hit the new ball straight down the ground, that's a very good sign for an opener. And I'm just like literally looking at them, I'm blank in my mind and, and thinking that, <laughs> I mean, I wasn't buying that. When the next innings came requiring 382, luckily we got Sri Lanka out at a time where uh, 
instead of having a 10 minute break, we had the whole lunch break to ourselves. And I was just sitting by myself and Sarfaraz comes in and says that, imagine we play for the same cricket club back in Karachi. And the owner is Nadeem Umar, who's the owner of Quetta Gladiators as well. So Sarfaraz comes up to me and says, imagine Shan Masood scores his first test 100 and goes back to Karachi and Nadeem Umar, Nadeem Umar announces him a, a, a cash reward and a medal for, for scoring his first time for Pakistan. <laughs> we were just laughing about that. And then when I went inside, we lost two early wickets. And I mean, we just, Yunus Khan came in and all he said was, keep batting, keep batting positively, trust your skill, don't be afraid to play your shots. And by the end of the day, we put ourselves in a good position to, to win the test match and, and I got my first hundred. So things worked in a funny way there. And then I got my average to 30, thinking that now this is going to be the start of my test career, on to bigger and better things. And we don't play the next test match for another three months. And that was against England and Abu Dhabi. And then when that starts, you're too eager to like get going, get another big score, back-to-back big scores. You wanna, uh, you're playing against an Ashes-winning England side. You wanna, you wanna prove people that you can get runs against them as well. And then I just get that freak dismissal where it hits my shoulder, hits my head, hits my grill, goes back onto the stumps. The next innings, I I chop one on back onto the stumps and on scores of one and one and and all of a sudden you begin to doubt after a match winning a record breaking hundred you begin to doubt yourself as a player as well. I got a fifty in the next match. The match later I was dropped because Azhar Ali came back in and then the next series was nine months later in England. Again I hyped myself up too much for that. I thought for me somebody who's been Partially raised in England, uh, I got my schooling done from there, the end schooling done from there. I went to uni there, my family lived there for about 10 years. So for me, it was like a kind of like a, a homecoming and, and my chance to like get rid of whatever bad I'd done before and then sort of do well in England, a place where I had good memories as a school cricketer, as a uni cricketer, and now I was trying to be a good international cricketer over there. I just put too much pressure on myself and... The results I got, I got in thrice in terms of as an opener, you talk about playing the new ball mm. and getting getting rid of that shine. I got myself in, especially at Lords in the second innings and then the first innings at Old Trafford. But again, I, I thought that there were a lot of limitations as a player, having watched the two best batsmen on that tour probably from the England side were Cook and Root and, and having seen their game and then realistically looking at my game, I just thought that as an international cricketer, I had a lot of flaws. And it was probably for the best. I mean, I didn't think so at that time, but I was dropped. And it just made me, I stayed back in England and made me reflect like long and hard on my game and my flaws and what I had to do if I had to turn things around and continue playing cricket. It's interesting because when you came over to England, I'd seen the innings in Palakelli. I'm not sure if I saw the innings against South Africa, but I certainly saw the one in Palakelli and you were in my notebook at that point. And then I saw a little bit against England in the UAE, but you came over to England and I knew you were going to be opening the batting. So I talked to some people who had played against you in uni cricket and, you know, knew your game fairly well. And they kept saying, look, he's a good 
first-class cricketer, but no one seemed to think you're a test cricketer. And then there was the other thing, which I think is worth talking about, is you do come from a very prominent family. You obviously speak English very well, probably better than I do. (laughs) And there is a throwback to Pakistani cricketers getting picked because they went to good schools in England and getting picked because their family are influential. On top of the fact that you were struggling for this rhythm, you were in and out the team. If someone got injured, you came in. You said you were too eager. So you had all those normal cricket problems. And then on top of that, I'm going to say a joke because it wouldn't have felt like a joke to you, but the sort of running line was you were only in the side because of your family and your family's connections. It must have been a very interesting time for you at that stage because you would have thought, no, I'm here because I have made runs. I just haven't made them at test level yet. The only thing I'd say what was kind of a bit like you shouldn't have any expectations, but a bit disappointing was that when I came to England, things were written on the hearsay of what other people knew about me or what other people thought they knew about me. And I read everything. I don't respond to a lot, but I read everything. I, I use it as constructive criticism. I use it as a sense of motivation. And if there's something that has to go through one year and out the other, I do that as well. So I, I, I welcome all sorts of propositions when I'm reading stuff. What was disappointing was that people wrote stuff that they hadn't sort of, um, they, had, they hadn't seen for themselves. And yeah. and that was a bit disappointing because um, what I did, and, and, and it kind of like, it's two things. So when you weigh that up against the kind of work you yourself do in the background, and you think you're doing things correctly, and then you hear and read things like that, it does hurt you, especially at a younger age. And... I mean, at that point, I was like, I wish people had formed an opinion of their own rather than believing from from other people, having to see things themselves. And at that point, I think as a cricketer, like I had to, when I reflected, I said, look, eventually you're going to grow up from this particular feeling this way. And it's going to be more about how you've done as a cricketer. And that's the only thing I can control. That's the only thing I can look at. If I have to look at what people are writing or or saying i can use it as a a constructive tool to see they might have a valid point or b use it as a sense of motivation because you also get um you also get people that are that seem like supporters but then they go and write something completely uh, ludicrous and and it kind of hurts you as well i've had that over over the course of my career as well um so you use it as as motivation to fuel you, and then you control what's what's in your in your hands. And and that was how do I improve myself as a cricketer? I I knew like at that point I was putting in the work, like I was putting in the hours when it came to fitness, when it came to batting. But what I didn't realize at that particular time was that I was probably doing a lot, but not doing the the right things or the more purposeful things that that make you progress as a cricketer. And for, for you to do that, you have to have an open mind, a learning mind, see the best players in the world, um, listen to the best advisors, the best coaches, the best managers in the world, and, and, and really reflect on that and then look at your own game and, and then, then come back and try and come back stronger. So, so I think what happened as a blessing in disguise from that England tour was that it put me in good stead. It made me be completely honest with myself. I was not comfortable in my own skin, how I reacted in that tour, how I was as a cricketer, and how I was performing. I thought that I had a lot more to offer, and and I think that just put me in good stead to, to be a better learner in cricket. 
And so from then on, did you come up with a direct plan or was it a bit more random? So uh, I know at one stage or another, you must have got in touch with Gary Palmer, but there were obviously, we'll, we'll get to all the people that you talked to, but did you go, okay, what I need to do, the first thing I need to do is fix my technique. The second thing I need to do is work out how to conquer the limited overs, or was it more just step-by-step, step, how do I become a better cricketer? How did you plan, let's call it Sean 2.0? You know, uh, Jared, the best thing is like, the things that you probably like hate the most, they turn out to be your best like lessons. They turn out to be your best motivators as well. Like like you talked about that particular tag about coming from a well-off family or an influential family. Um, I mean, if I'm being honest with you, I've I've heard it since I was about eight years old and mm. started playing cricket, started playing hardball cricket. When I turned 13 and, and, and got into the Pakistan under 15 side, I probably heard a lot that a, that probably a 13-year-old shouldn't hear about himself. And I think that's something that carried on for the rest of my career till I even started playing. Mm. And I think because like when you mentioned the word, the second version and stuff, I think it all came about as a learning that all throughout my career, whether it was a junior cricketer, a schools cricketer, a first-class cricketer, I've never been looked as the part, especially. And then I've had to work my way up. And that's a great lesson for anyone. And, and that's a great opportunity for anyone when you get the chance to work your way up. Um, whether it was school cricket, like even when I came to England, school cricket, first season, I didn't get the hang of it. It took me the time off between the next season. It allowed me the sort of capacity to learn the game more properly. When I went into uni cricket as well, I found my feet as the season went on. When it came to first-class cricket, I had my uh, best first-class season probably in my fifth or sixth season. So even with like one-day cricket, white ball cricket, T20 cricket, I hadn't done well and I'd been playing consistently for four years or five years and I hadn't had that record. So I had a lot in the backup as experience, a lot to learn from. Mm -hmm. And I think till the, I don't know an exact number, but sort of it was two against South Africa, two against New Zealand and about uh, four against England. So, and one against you. So in nine, 10 test matches, I had the back of 10 test matches where I had the experience of 10 test matches. So it gave me sort of an adequate opportunity to sort of assess myself and really draw from all that experience and see where were the times where I was really down. Did I come back up from those times? How did I respond to certain situations? And there were a lot of patterns. And I think I went back. You know how they say you should never forget your roots. You should never forget where you come from. So so in my, my deep roots, they were that I've always started off slow. And then I've gradually picked up and, and I've got the hang of it. So... The same came with, with international cricket. I had to instill this belief in myself, even though it was hard at that particular time, that I can bounce back. I have the ability to bounce back. And that's one of probably my biggest traits that I don't give up. And I'm always looking to like come up with solutions and bouncing back. And so when you're looking to come up with solutions, is Gary Palmer the first person you call? How do you hear about him? How did that come about? My uh, manager at that point was this lady called Farah Borsi. And... I think she was having a word with, I'm not sure how I remember this story, but she was uh, having a chat with Simon Hughes. And I think Simon Hughes mentioned Gary Palmer and said that Sean should, should, should look to sort of speak to Gary at least. So I, I called my family up. They were back in Pakistan. They were expecting me back in Pakistan. I called them up and I said, look, I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to stay back. 
and I'll, I'll let you know how long I want to stay here. And then I talked to Gary and he'd mentioned uh, seeing both the test matches and he mentioned that this is what I feel you're doing and I feel that we can work on your technique and, and we can get something started. I feel you have something that we can work on. And again, it was in 2016, so I don't remember his exact words, but I do remember at that point I was sold and I thought that this sounds like a very good proposition. And it's something that I looked at, like it makes you let go of your ego a bit as well mm. when you're hiring a coach. So when you tell an international cricketer, oh, I'm hiring a coach, it'll be like, you're an international cricketer. Why do you need to hire a coach? The best example is tennis players. They have their own individual coaches. And I think I, I didn't waste any time. I called home and I said, look, this is what I want to do. Um, this is an investment. I've never really invested in myself. I've always gone with the flow, gone with, with whatever's happening. I want to take this opportunity and invest in this and also invest in, in sort of working on myself mentally as well. So I think I spent about a month in England and initially we had three sessions a week with Gary. And it's not short at all. It's it's three and a half, four hours of just intense hitting. And, <laughs> and he's very particular. He's very set in his ways. And he just wants perfection. So even though I, I want perfection, but when someone else is expecting perfection of me, I kind of hate it. So that's double standards. But yeah, I mean, it was something new. And I'd invested in something and I'd given myself into something, which was, I think, the first right step in, in improving myself as a player. It's funny that you talk about the international coach because he was Alistair Cook's coach. And it's not just Gary Palmer. There's been lots of guys out there. Um, you know, Stephen Jones does it. Trent Woodhill yeah. does it. Ireland's coach, who I've forgotten, the South African coach of Ireland. Um, Graham Ford. Yeah, yeah now it's pretty big. It, but it makes sense. You've got, you've got some of your county players going to uh, Geo Calusi in South Africa. Of course, Africa yeah. Well. Geo's another one. And when he's not training models, of course, Geo Calusi, <laughs> which he also does. But, but essentially, like it makes sense on a skill level, and you see it in basketball. So basketball's another sport where it's a team sport, yeah. but there's a lot of individual skills within it that yeah. you need. And so you see a basketballer will go off and they'll work with a, a shooting coach or they'll work with a handling coach or whatever it is, and then they come back to the team environment. It seems that cricket hasn't quite accepted that in the same way just yet. Cricket's always been very traditional, and it's always been hard to get rid of those uh, or transfer those traditional aspects into what the modern day game is doing or what the modern day athlete is doing. I think in cricket, some of the examples I remember were, uh, I think Butler and, and Best are going to Newcastle United or where for, for, for some mm. goalkeeping training or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, those are things like you look at and initially these coaches were known as, as sort of rebel coaches, maverick coaches. But I think now, now you get a lot of these coaches around and you get a lot of consultants, the word consultants used quite frequently. And, and I think it's for the betterment of the game. Um, like you said, the NBA, like I love that sport and, and like I like following athletes all around the world and everyone has a go-to person. So why should cricketers be any different? And I just felt that again, like I used Gary back then. Whenever I go to England, I still, I still coordinate with Gary. From that point on, you then start to talk to other people. Hassan Chima is one of them, who's the general manager of Islamabad. Why are you talking to people like Hassan at that point? One of my uh, favorite movies would, would always be Moneyball. <laughs> it's this fascinating seeing like sports being mixed up with numbers. And I think this year having Nathan Lehman in our setup was quite, yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, I'd say, I'd say uh, 
a dream come true, a short dream come true. But yeah, I mean, it was it was really good having having him there as well. Uh, somebody who's who's working in the England setup. Yeah, I mean, it was fascinating to see someone from Pakistan being into into numbers, and I think Islamabad United with Hassan and Rehan back then were and. And my thing was because they were also sort of managing a PSL franchise. It was about you know about what I had to do as a player in terms of the numbers I had to achieve, uh, what teams are looking for generally. Because I think when you're picking a team, you have good knowledge of what players should be averaging, what they should be striking at, different things. And I remember speaking to Hassan, and, and what he said: a good number to start off with would be thirty one thirty, so an average of thirty, a strike rate of one thirty. And he said that if you do that in the domestic tournament, a lot of the teams would be interested in you. And this is 2017, so just before PSL3. Unfortunately, the tournament got delayed and the draft got held before the PSL. And um, when the draft happened, I didn't get picked. Uh, again, those were one of the moments where I looked at myself, I looked at my numbers, and I said I shouldn't even be expecting to get picked in that. All I should be looking forward to is having a good tournament, T20 tournament. And what happened was that in the first game, I got 83 of, of 49, and then the next three games were average, where I got a couple of 30s. And I was really getting like annoyed with myself that I got a good 80, then I got a couple of 30s, but I haven't. I failed to convert those into like good, big, consistent scores. So I was speaking to Hassan and. Uh, He told me something very interesting. He said that from the small sample size of T20 games that I've played, uh, especially after 2015, and 2015 had been my turnaround of, of T20 cricket. There's only once that I'd managed to bat beyond the eighth over, and in that I ended up getting 83 runs, and that had happened in this particular tournament itself. So he said, "Your power play numbers are exceptional." You mostly get out to left arm spinners. He said, "My point of advice would be that once you get done with power play and you're striking on average like you do, like on average, if you're playing 18 balls, you're scoring 26 runs. Next four overs, if you're facing half the balls, which is 12 balls, you make sure that you take singles and look for a calculated boundary rather than risking something." And I said, "Fine, I'll try that." And in the next game, literally, I got 26 in the power play. I was at 39 after 10 overs. And when the next 10 overs finished, I came not out at 103 of 66. So I mean, it's intriguing. Like I'm the sort of person that welcomes anything from anyone. They don't have to be cricketers. And I think if I'm speaking of Hassan, a lot of people would still look at it as, oh, he's not a cricketer. How much would he know? But I think the game life has evolved in such a way that you should listen to everyone. I think he has Rehan at the franchise. When when we joined, when I joined Multan Sultans, we had. Had the Razor over there as well. This year around, I mean, Multan went the whole distance. We got Nathan Lehman in. We got Patrick Moon in. So like with Patrick getting all the dossiers, um, it's incredible stuff. And and that's what I say. Like with the coaches, it's as well. This is something that every other game is adopting. Like you look at basketball, mm. um, you look at baseball. It's based on numbers and and whatever little one percent you can get of anyone. And that's been me. Whether it's it's a cricketing coach at the end of the day that I've gone on to work with after to like post 2016 post England series, or whether it's been somebody who has good knowledge of the game and who's involved in the game in some capacity, I'll always have open ears for them. So next, I received an email <laughs> um, at this stage, yeah. and I, I'm going to be honest. I'm not sure if I've told you this, but when I got the email, yeah. I thought that can't be. 
So no cricketer had ever emailed me while they were playing their career before. WhatsApp and Instagram and Twitter, (laughs) that happens quite regularly. But I've never had anyone email me. So I remember um, running it past a friend going, is this the real thing? And he went off and checked. And he said, yeah, it's, it's really him. And so we, we met up in London. Yeah. Now, you you read an article I think I'd written on Roman Reyes and uh, New Ball Bowlers. Yes. And you were looking at this sort of stuff. You, you were looking for numbers. We had a very, very interesting chat. I'm going to start with one of the first things you talked about. You said when you came to England, you realized that you couldn't be stuck around off stump line. Yeah. And you were trying to push the ball through covers to get off the mark because you thought that's what Joe Root did. And that ended up being the complete opposite and it ended up being your downfall. What happened there? So you're at home watching TV and watching Joe Root and you're seeing him play this shot and you're just getting it slightly wrong when you're trying to put it together or was it that you misunderstood what he was doing? I think I completely misunderstood what he was doing and (laughs) I didn't take into account that I was playing on Pakistani pitches before the England tour. And he was playing on much quicker and much bouncier pitches than Pakistani pitches in England where the ball was moving around a bit as well. And the main thing that I failed to uh, sort of pick up was that probably trying to go for the same shot, a back foot punch, because I, co- I couldn't cut the ball back then with a horizontal back. But what I ended up doing was I started playing it towards extra cover mm. and maybe even a touch towards mid-off. And that's a recipe for disaster. And then when you look at Root, who's probably the best at playing that shot, plays it towards point, uh, he plays it towards gully, and there's always a fielder, a sweeper that's back at the rope even when he's at the start of the innings. And he started to annoy a lot of teams by getting a lot of runs over there, and that was something that we probably call him a pioneer of that shot. And so that's a very important area in test cricket. And I think I did touch on you with that, that how important is that particular area, the point region, the backward point region when you want to score runs. So I think from my side, it was a huge miscalculation that I was trying to play that shot a bit straighter than than playing it late and playing it inside um, and then playing it more towards point. And then another thing that we talked about was expectations. So you were talking about how, as a natural thing, you you want to average 50 in a test series. And I was saying that it's ridiculous to think as an overseas opener, especially as an Asian opener. Mentioned in the 20s, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I think, I can't remember what the numbers are off the top of my head, but I think the average opening batsman in England averages 32. And that includes Alistair Cook's numbers as well. So I was saying to you that you have to sort of think about it in a different way, which is how long can you take off the new ball? Pakistan have a very good middle order. But the thing is, you also need the backing of the coaches and the captains and everything there. Whereas it, you would have been told, go out there and make as many runs as you can. And that maybe was not the best advice for opening in England. Yeah, I think that's why I feel that you have to, that you should have access and you should invest in every sort of resource available in cricket. And that's why I feel numbers play a huge role. Um, if you're just going out, blindly, not knowing that what the trends are in that particular place. I don't think you can ever be consistent with that. But if you do have a fair idea and use it as a tool, again, I say that it's not a solution. Numbers are never going to be a solution, but they're always going to be a good diagnostic tool. Mm. And so if I have, let's say, the idea of where a particular bowler finds most of the success or where bowlers bowl mostly in England or What are the type of scores that you get with the new ball? So then you can sort of harness your expectations as well. There I am like looking to go there, get a, get a hundred, a 200 and not knowing that probably Jimmy Anderson has other ideas and the Duke ball has other ideas. So you, so I think these sort of tools, these sort of like uh, frameworks, they allow you to harness your expectations 
and allow you to prepare better. And it's all about preparation at the end of the day, Jared. Like you can think whatever you like, you can expect whatever you like, but anything that's in your control, it's your preparation. And the more purposeful your preparation is, the better you feel and the less eager you are. I mean, eagerness is going to get you to a certain place, but at the end of the day, it's all about preparation. And I think it's a good tool to have in the future. So let's say when we, if we come to England again, Hmm. at least we'll have a better idea than than what we did last time around. And then the last thing we talked about was T20 cricket in general. I think you've just started playing the good innings in the domestic league when we started. So you missed out on the PSL, you played those good innings, and we had a bit of a look through. And, you know, one thing that we talked about a lot was the need to have one or two shots. And that also goes back to what you were learning with Gary at the time. So you take what Hassan say, what I say. I'm sure you talk to a lot of other people because you're a very thorough person as well. And you go back to Gary. But you're putting all these different things together. And then from that, you do actually end up in the PSL, don't you? Yeah. I think one of the things we talked about and you, I think, raised that point was we were going through my uh, one-day numbers and T20 numbers in tandem Mm. because my one-day numbers had a really good sample size, three years of hardcore one-day cricket, list-day cricket, and they were really decent numbers. Uh, And one thing I said was that I do not hit many sixes, but if you look at the four counts, I have a lot of fours, Mm. which in international cricket or like let's say the PSL might not be a big factor because you might have better fielding sites and people might stop those boundaries. But you did raise a, raise a point back then. I mean, it's different for Rohit Sharma now, but you mentioned Rohit Sharma in that bracket. You mentioned Steve Smith in that bracket. And you said they get a lot of boundaries and they don't hit many sixes. So that was one thing that I looked at when I went back. It was looking at my strengths. So if my strengths were, were hitting fours, I would mostly concentrate on that, but also then look at the viable options I had to hit sixes, but then I would really work hard at hitting at at those particular places. And I think if I look at the PSL this year as well, I only had two sixes. (laughs) So, I mean, uh, I think there's a lot to work on when it comes to that, but I think I still stuck to my strength, which was finding the boundary even when the field is spread making sure I don't hog on to the strike. I keep rotating the strike. And I think this year in the PSL, I, I was very comfortable in my skin, even when the team asked me if I could bat at number three so we could shift Moin Ali as an opener or Zishan Ashraf as an opener along with Vince. I had no hesitation because I was really comfortable with my game and I knew that at any point I could do something. And, and the most fascinating thing was, and I had no idea of it till Patrick pointed it out once the tournament had finished. For a very long time, I had the highest strike rate in the death overs. And towards the end of it, it was only bettered by Alex Hales and Ben Dunk. So my death over strike rate was 230. And, wow. And for a guy who didn't hit a single six. So, I mean, I'm just saying that cricket works in such a funny way that when you become more comfortable in your skin, mm. when you stick to your strengths, and when you acknowledge that whatever the situation comes, like you just devote yourself to give it your best shot. I think when you have an open mind, a lot of things open up. Well, one of the interesting things, and I don't think I took the actual numbers down, but when I was looking up your record before this interview, your PSL numbers are now better than your normal T20 numbers, which once that happens, that means that there's been a fundamental shift. And we know there has been. But even with that, and there was that running meme for a while where you, I think you've, you have the second highest or the highest average in list state cricket. And 
people comparing you to Virat Kohli and, you know, all those. All <laughs> those a lot of stick for that. Exactly, exactly. You know, and I helped by sharing that as much as I could. <laughs> but, but at that point, there are still a lot of Pakistani fans who probably are still thinking you're done in test cricket. You had your chance. You had multiple chances. Yeah. It didn't work out for you, right? So when you come back, I would assume now that you're in a headspace where you're like, well, I've worked out T20 cricket and I've worked on my game and so I trust myself. So I would have thought when you came back, the stuff about your family and the stuff about you failing in the first time, because I think you averaged what? Over 12 tests, I think you averaged 20. Yeah, 23, 23.6. So, I mean, at that stage, the fans have probably written you off, but you come back, but you're a different person in your mind at this stage. So I would have thought that all that noise wouldn't bother you as much. So when I came back, I'd gone through a lot. So I had a knee injury. I had structural damage in my knee. And that was after having all those record-breaking one-day seasons, domestic cricket seasons. That happened while doing fielding drills at the PSL. My first sort of stage in the PSL. So that was PSL 3. I'd sat out eight games in a row before the ninth game. I mean, I was sitting out that particular game as well and I was doing fielding drills with Johan Botha. I went for a diving catch, landed awkwardly and ended up tearing a ligament that you normally don't tear uh, because PCL is like your strongest ligament and you don't tear it in isolation. Mm. Had to miss the England tour in 2018 because of that. Went to Crystal Palace under the guidance of Dr. Zass. Had all my treatments, all my rehab done over there. And once you miss cricket because of an injury and you sit out for that whole month and you know that there's a chance that you might never play again. Because when I've seen people with knee injuries, like I watch a lot of football and when somebody has a knee injury, then coming back is always like mm. they're never the same player. When I saw a lot of cricketers with knee injuries, I know them personally. They're never the same players. And I'm the sort of guy that I like to do everything at full throttle. If I want to run, I want to run at the fastest I can. I want to jump, I'll jump the highest I can. So if there's a knee issue which might prevent me from being, as I was always considered, being one of the fittest cricketers in, in the Pakistan setup. If that was going to hamper that, I would have seriously considered not playing. I wouldn't want to be the guy who would have had his knees taped up mm. or like getting treatments, getting injections, getting your fluids out. So what I did was I made a pact. I asked Dr. Zass, be honest with me. And what would I have to do to make sure that I regain full fitness again? It took me seven months to do that. And those seven months taught me a lot. So, so any other thing like a, like a tag or anything else that went back in the window. And I think that, that was the particular time where I met you as well. Because that was 2018. And I didn't get picked for the one-day side as well. Mm. When we were going to Zimbabwe, I thought with all those record-breaking seasons, I might have a chance at making the ODI squad at least. So I missed the Test Series. I missed the ODI Series. So even when things were going well, I get an injury. I get omitted from, from the sides. So again, anything else, I think that made me stronger. And that made me realize that if there are tags, if there are omissions, everything's going to teach you a lesson and help you become a better cricketer. And when I went into the season, that season specifically, I just played 18 cricket because I was drafted into the Pakistani side. I got selected for the Asia Cup, didn't play a game there, got drafted into the Pakistani side. For three and a half months in the UAE, we played against the Australian Test team. We played against uh, England Lions. We played against New Zealand A. And then to, like after our chats, after the injury, after the omissions, I got to play that amount of cricket against really good opposition. And I thought that that helped me in good stead going towards 2019. So at this point, I hadn't even come back into the international setup yet, but I'd gotten a lot of things in the background that taught me a lot of valuable lessons. 
So when you do come back in South Africa, you're feeling like yeah. for the first time like you belong? That's the first time that I did not consider like going into an exam or I'm going to South Africa to score runs in South Africa. I was just very grateful to be back in the team. I did not even think that, oh, one month down the line when they announced the one-day team, will I be in the one-day team? I did not look at that as well. So when we went to South Africa, I just had a clear mind, a mind where I didn't think of anything but the present moment. When we went into the practice game and, and Mickey told us that it was a battle off between me and Imam for the final spot in the playing 11, I didn't even think about that. I went inside. I think I scored 40 of 36 balls and I hit nine boundaries in that 40. So I was just like in a zone that probably I feel every cricketer is when they're, when they're at the top of their game. Even when I went for that second innings in that game and I was opening with Imam in that second innings of the side game, I was like, you're bothered about just what that, oh, I scored a good pretty 40, but I'll have to get more runs than Imam. I got out for 24 of 18 balls in that and I scored like six boundaries in that as well. So again, I didn't care about that first 11 spot. And then when we went into the Boxing Day Test match at Centurion, playing 11 was announced. I wasn't part of the playing 11. So me... Rizwan and Shadab, all of us weren't part of the playing 11. There was a center net, like literally next to the center wicket. There was a net set up and the pitch wasn't the greatest. So everyone else went into the nets that are on the uphill, like uh, when you when you cross the bank, yeah, uh, on the backside of the bank. So me, Rizwan and Shadab were just doing throwdowns in that wicket, center wicket. And I was just imagining myself playing a test match at the Centurion because it just looked like an amazing place to play a test match at. <laughs> that day, Harris, like the team's doing their practice, Harris Will comes up, he's on the bank, Mickey's there, Cliff, our physio was with us, he was throwing balls to us, so they called Cliff, so Cliff had to leave our practice session, he goes up there and this conversation sounds very serious. I'm not paying any attention to it. I'm still batting, I'm batting for like the next couple of hours altogether and just really enjoying it. And then Sarfaraz comes in, he calls me to the side and he's like, will you be okay batting at number three? I said, skip, no problem. I'd love batting at number three. <laughs> and I think I remember pulling a joke at when the test match was starting. So I had a wristband on and had a cup of coffee. <laughs> so as an opener, like the worst thing as an opener is that you have to be the first person stepping out. So when it's the first time you win the toss and, or lose the toss and you have to bat first, that's still okay because you get 30 minutes of preparation. But when you're fielding, and you walk back in, it's just 10 minutes. Those aren't even 10 minutes. They're like seven, eight minutes because the umpires walk in a couple of minutes earlier. Mm. And you don't even get time to, to pad up or do your routines. And I have specific routines that I like to do before going out to bat. So that one down position just felt really relaxing. So I came out with a cap, my gloves were in my helmet. I sat down, I had my coffee and I just told Mickey, call me Joe Root. <laughs> 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 I just enjoyed it. I just enjoyed the. You must have enjoyed it also in a different way than you probably did when you were first in the team. That's a different kind of excitement, isn't it? So, so when I went inside, Rabad had got Imam of the first ball. <laughs> and I went inside and I didn't even ask Fakhar what was happening because I just wanted to experience it myself. If I got out playing a bad shot, it's my fault. If I didn't know what the ball was doing, I want to take all the blame on myself. And again, I got it. Decent start in that innings. Me and Azhar Ali got a decent partnership going and, and at drink, South Africa were gone for about 56 runs in 14 overs and that's a good scoring rate and they know anything over 200 and they're in trouble mm. because that was the kind of deck at the Centurion then. And then at 19, Olafair comes in and he really balls like a ball that I would clip to square leg or fine leg any day. I miss it. It hits my thigh. 
ricochets back onto my gloves and then goes back onto the stumps. And when I walk back up, like in my mind, a little bit of that thought comes in again, that here we go again. Like that's my international career. That's in one picture, in one clip. Mm. But then you get like a lot of people coming up to you, the coach, Mickey coming up to you saying you looked really good. You looked at home, like for someone playing his first game in South Africa, you played Rabada, you played Stain, you played Olafair, and it all looks so comfortable. And I said, yeah, fine, but I'm going to be judged by the number of runs I score. He said, you just have to make sure you enjoy the second innings again. And then I think that second innings was something that, I mean, unfortunately, we lost a lot of wickets in a row. And then I ended up, I could have been clever. And we've seen players being clever, like we saw Steve Smith at Edgbaston. Um, he was on 50 when Siddle came to bat. Mm. Virat Kohli in South Africa when he scored that 150 at the Centurion. He ended up scoring a 150 when they were eight down as well. So I think it was a bit of an experience where I just wanted to hit a big shot and I ended up hitting one to the boundary on 65. I could have trusted Hassan Ali more. We had Shaheen Afridi after that as well. But it was a good confirmation that I can play at this level. No, and, and then you went on to Australia, which is probably... Well, for a Pakistani batsman, almost the, the biggest challenge, realistically, especially for someone like you who grew up in England. So at least you had an idea of England and uh, South Africa somewhere in the middle between England and Australia. And again, you looked really good. And by this stage, you must feel like it's working. And then you end up back at home in Pakistan, which, to be fair, as much as anything, must have been an emotional thing. And uh, you're pulling out the hundreds uh, left. In fact, you're lucky. Let's be very accurate here. Your last two innings in Test Match Cricket, and they might be for quite some time, are Test Match Hundreds. Look, I mean, again, like, whatever happens, like, we, we can all see this is all on the surface. Um, and again, if I'm going to be honest, the wickets in South Africa were much tougher than Australia. In Australia, I think we were very fortunate to get good batting wickets. And mm-hmm. I still felt that we underperformed as a batting unit. We did relatively better than New Zealand. But in Australia, the difference was we came up against probably the best attack in, in test cricket that we've seen for a while. With all due respect to South Africa, brilliant attack, the four fast bowlers they had, two of them being best in the world for a long time, and then Rabada and then Olafair. But if I have to pick an attack, I'd always go with Cummins, Stark, Hazelwood, and then Nathan Lyon. So we played a better bowling attack. We had better pitches, but the thing was that there was a gap of 10 months between the two series and we hadn't played test cricket in between them. Mm. Um, so that's never easy. Also, the, the snub of the World Cup where the only point where I might feel like having an external, I won't call it a blame or looking at an external factor would be that having scoring heavily in the one day setup for three years and only getting one opportunity before the World Cup and Australian series where I felt I was quite rusty. I got a few starts. I got three really good starts. I got a 50. I got a 40 as well. But I was very rusty in that series because I'd sat out the PSL. I'd sat out the South African One Day Series. And and as a cricketer, I keep pointing at the fact that it's very important to keep playing, whether it's domestic cricket, whether it's club cricket or anything, you have to keep playing. So when that audition, One Day audition finally came up to me and I felt that I'll be the third opener. I managed to, to screw it up badly. Uh, Abid Ali came in, got 100, <laughs> and I was left out of the World Cup side. And to me, that was something that I had in my mind. Like when you plan for long-term goals, the World Cup in England, again, holds a special place in my heart. And, and playing a World Cup in England would have been great. But again, missed opportunity. And I think, again, from all the good work I'd done over the previous three years and in South Africa, that set me back up a little bit. 
mentally it was very challenging. So when I went into the first class season, first three innings, I didn't get any scores. I got low scores. And then there was a T20 tournament in between as well. I didn't get any runs. But then I got a 100 and a 50. But I felt I was playing a lot with my head then because so much had happened during that World Cup thing and I'd taken it so badly. Like, it affected me. Like, mm-hmm. I'd gone quiet. All I was doing was just training and probably had no outside life outside cricket. And I just didn't take that World Cup snub too well. And uh, so what happened as a consequence was that I had to use my mind a lot after that. And I felt my body was not in control when I was playing cricket after that. It was just thoughts after thoughts after thoughts. I started worrying about the axe from the side again. Started worrying about the axe from the test side as well. So then when Australia came in, like, I'll admit that it was a decent tour, but I think I was fighting a lot of things. I was very gritty in Australia, Mm. but I wasn't pretty. In South Africa, I was in control. I was in command of my game. I played a lot of shots. In Australia, like that first innings at the Gabba, if there's an innings I have to regret, it'd probably be the first innings at the Gabba because that innings made me realize that I did not back my pull shot over there. And then I brought my pull shot out in the second innings and my pull shot worked in the second innings. And then I was just a bit disappointed that when the pitch was much more flatter and better in the first innings, Mm. the second innings, the cracks had opened up, the bounce was much more variable. So I just wish that I'd taken the short ball on more at the Gabba. So overall, that tour in Australia, there was a lot of fight, a lot of grit, but I wasn't at the place I wanted to be. And when we came back to Pakistan, we played the first test against Sri Lanka. And I was in the same position, like mentally, I ended up hitting a full toss straight to mid-off. And that's probably one of the most embarrassing moments in my career. <laughs> test match, back home, first test. We feel for four days because of weather. Fifth day, we get the chance to bat. First time batting in my own country. And Rajita, who was struggling with his hamstring, bowled a full toss. And I hit it straight to mid-off. Then when we went into the second test, first innings, I got a decent ball from Vishwa Fernando. I got out for six. And mentally, I'm just like cooked. And I just felt that I was not in the space I wanted to be. So the next day is like, I made sure I fought in the field. Whenever I don't do well with the bat, like whenever I'm in the field, I like running around. I like diving around. So I just made sure that I gave everything I wanted to in the field. And then we got a tricky little session where Sri Lanka had a lead of 84. And we had to bat 12, 13 overs out, me and Abid. And in Karachi, during the evenings, the sea breeze starts to blow. The ball moves around. If you get the new ball, it moves around a bit as well. Mm. The lights were on. We managed to get 57 runs in those 13 overs. A bit scrappy from my side. But what mattered more was that I got to bat again the next day as well. And let me be honest with you, till 78, that's when lunch took place. Till 78, I probably batted one of my most ugliest innings ever. Especially with the fast legs. The spinners, it was probably the first time that I was playing the spinners better than the fast bowlers. Normally, my uh, technique against the spinners comes under more question. And then once I went back after lunch, I don't know, I made a little technical adjustment during a test match. So, So that was my mind frame. I wasn't afraid to make a technical adjustment during the game. So once I was at lunch, I thought about something. And I said, I'm going to make that adjustment when I go back out. So when you came back out, looked a completely different player, ended up with 135, played a horrible shot on the stroke of T. But I think that set me up. And then the next 10 days, I I went to London. I spent those next 10 days in London uh, with my father. Just wanted to take a break from the game and be mentally refreshed for what was to come. 
and then I made a conscious decision, and I give a lot of credit to Mispa and our uh, one of our assistant coaches called Shahid Aslam. Uh, we had a long chat, and he said that even after the hundred, like once you get a hundred, you get probably you might go into that ego frame of mind and say, "Oh, I've got in a hundred, I've got the hang of it, I'll be fine now." But he said he asked me, "Do you want to take a game to the next level?" And I said that yes, that's my aim, and even if I score a hundred. I'll always be disappointed by what I didn't do and what I should be learning at and whatever mistakes I made. So he said, once you're done with this little break, why don't you straight from London come come straight to Lahore and stay over there? So I went from London. I went straight to Lahore. I spent a month and a half in Lahore. Under Mispa was there. He oversaw all the things. I worked technically with Shahid Aslam. For the first time, I noticed there's a really good sort of culture set around. So we had Babar Azam. We had Imam. We had Azhar Ali, so all the locals, Abid Ali, and then we had all the bowlers. So we had bowlers like Shaheen Shah, Nasim Shah, Bas. So we we're training with them every day. Um, we had good spinners. We had Yasser Shah. We had Zafar Gohar. Everyone was coming in. Haris Sohail was there as well. So, so we set up like a routine, a culture where we would train mornings and evenings. We would practice. Uh, we would gym together, and that one month and a half really set me up in good stead. And when the Bangladesh Test match came. I think that's probably one of the most fluent innings I've ever played. I was on 50 or 54 balls, and then I took my time to get to the hundred because we lost a few wickets. And then again, on the stroke of team, me being me, I missed a full toss and got bowled. So Rahul Pindi does not hold a special place in my heart because I've missed twice on full tosses over there. But it just put me in good stead. And then when the PSL came, I was in in sort of control, in command, and in in good sort of stead for my own game and. And I think that reflected in the stats as well. So basically, what we're saying here is that you're on the verge of being a Test great now, as long as you can handle full tosses. <laughs> I can never get too ahead of myself, but yeah, I do need to work on the full tosses. And again, like there might be two hundreds in two games, but this isn't the time to get ahead of yourself. And I think yes, I'm disappointed that we had another Test match against Bangladesh, and then we had we were still supposed to have three Test matches against England and. And the whole thing, but we're not sure of what's going to happen. We can also look at it as a blessing in disguise that it's probably a good time to switch off because it's been eight continuous months of cricket. Work on myself mentally, physically, and then also like technically. Like cricket's a game like you have to stick to your basics, and the greats are those that stick to their basics under pressure, while those who don't do well they struggle to stick to their basics when under pressure. So this is a good time to learn the basics of the game as well. Speak to people, read, learn, work on my physical fitness. Try to see what I can do to improve myself as a batsman, as a cricketer. Even when I'm working in the gym, so gym isn't about like making sure that I have a good cardio fitness or good strength. It's more about what's going to help me get runs. So I think it's come at a good time, but again, I shouldn't get too far ahead of myself. It's good to have two hundreds out of two, but Great players are those that scored five, six hundreds in a row, or they score eight hundreds in a season. They score a thousand runs in a season consistently, not just once. So there's there's a lot to achieve, but at least now I know that what it takes to to have just that little bit of success, and and it's not little. You have to do a lot. So it's about whether I'm consistently willing to do a lot to to better my numbers. I think, if anything, this conversation has proved that you're willing to do that. So good luck into the future. And so far, it's only eight tests back. <laughs> you didn't play in the World Cup, but I certainly enjoyed Sean 2.0. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Dad. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. You can follow my guest at Shani underscore official. I can be found on Twitter. There's also the new YouTube channel, which has videos and, well, videos. I mean, it's YouTube. I suppose it doesn't have anything else. Jared Kimber YT, I think it's called. I don't know. Just put my name into the YouTube thing or look at the show notes. Uh, Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on each individual platform you use or on a bar toilet wall if you're still lucky enough to be able to go into bar toilets. Although I suppose you can't really be lucky enough to go into bar toilet walls. But you know what I'm saying. This really does help us. And I'm sure that that's the case because of all the podcasts you've mentioned it before me. Our Patreon listeners fund this series. So huge thank you to them. So if you like it, if you can pop over there and help support us on Patreon again, that should be in the show notes. And thanks to the many, many out there who already are supporting us. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston pours liquid gold into your ear. And the theme tune is by the Red Crickets.